friends, and welcome back to Chasing Hazel's Tales, a family history podcast that deep dives into our family history, DNA, and the special connections that we have made. I'm Kim McLaughlin. And I'm Laura Ireland. And the last we spoke, after completing Hazel's journey and the tragic sense of her life, we found her beginnings, where she lost her mother at three months. Then she went to an orphanage and was adopted and had a fairly happy childhood, an unfortunate marriage to someone that she shared very little with. She had illness, World War II, and then finally she passed. The reality of her life was stark, but we're grateful and at least now we know more about Hazel. And while we were able to learn some information about our grandmother, we're still left with some questions. And I guess that's kind of probably how most people are, but we we don't know who knew about the misattributed parentage of our father. Stan must have known, Some of his children, we know they knew. Georgia, the oldest daughter, knew. And Hattie and Carl knew. And the neighbor and family friend, Mona Sage, the one who um, Hazel made or got the dress for, she knew about it. So I think we're just kind of left wondering if dad knew. And I kind of have the feeling he did. I don't really know about you, but at 11 being kind of left out of your father's life, I think that makes me think he must have realized something was not right think, there. I think the mere fact that he never talked about it maybe leads you to believe he did know. Because if he, mm-hmm. if he did begin talking about it, then it would come out really quick. And then right. it would just be a subject that he didn't want to talk about. So I think he did. I, right. I, and that's just all speculation on our part, but the best guess we have. And we don't know if Gerald knew that he had a son with Hazel. Not at all. Oh. Have no. We have no inkling and no clue. No clue. None of the family that we know. Yeah. I wonder if life might have been different if we all knew about it. But I think honestly, for sure. <laughs> it, at least your perception would be different. Right. You know, life itself might not have looked too mm-hmm. differently. But that understanding of where you've come from and who you are and um, your story surely makes a difference. And with all this memorabilia from Carl and that we have that he saved, and maybe there's more people that know about this family history that we haven't met yet. And if we get any more information about this, we'll be sure to pass it along in some of our future episodes. We sure will. (laughs) Emergency (laughs) episode, emergency episode. Just try and stop us. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we interrupt all these other broadcasts for this right. thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then after all of, after we found out all that, what was kind of sad is that Hazel's parents, Roscoe and uh, Georgia Lang, we call it in the genealogy world being daughtered out, meaning that there were no more males to pass on the family name. So she, although jo- Hazel had children, which include us and others. Mm-hmm. So that family line does continue. But the Lang part does not, whereas Carl was married but never had any children. So the Carl Lang, the Lang family name is from Roscoe, is now gone. So there's no more descendants with that name, which kind of makes me sad, but it is the way it is. But we have the daughters. (laughs) That's right. Thank goodness for us, right? Right. Yeah. And so we know that, you know, Stan Burgoyne remarried and went on to have six more children. So the Burgoyne clan flourished in the Holland area. And ask any instructor that ever passed through the school system there in Holland. And I'm sure they will have memories of a Burgoyne being in their classes. Or I don't even know since when, probably from the time of our oldest cousins, 
Yeah. Maybe Christine. I'm not sure. And down through like, well, I think there's, yeah. Yep. But I mean, there's still. Oh, right. Still descendants there. There's still de- descendants there and probably in the school system, right? From George's, right. from yep. George's line. Yep. So. And um, I think Patty, probably Pat, Patty, uh, her, her grandchildren. Her grandchildren, yep. right. Yep. yep. So that's um, great. And, you know, even when I went through the school system. You were the, the last one of the I was the last right? one of, of that part. Yeah. Being the through, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, around 1980 or so, 70, uh, 79, 80 or whatever. I remember being greeted in one of my first days in high school in, well, it was actually Mrs. Burgoyne's class, yeah, uh, the, the earth yeah. science room. Mr. True came over and, you know, wanted to tease the freshman a little bit. And he looked down through the list and he saw my name and he said, oh, another one of them damn Burgoynes. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was, it was a long line. So yeah. anyway, that, you know. Side note, one of, one of our aunts did teach at the high school and uh, we had her for classes. Yes. So, yep. We had anyway. her for freshman year. Yep. So we began with family history about 35 years ago. You know, one of our aunts provided us with a family tree that Stan, that Stan had. He had contributed to, you know, people had written and asked him questions and then he contributed and had a bunch of memories that he had written down. But then also there was a note or a family tree that showed that the Burgoyne clan that we were were part of was related to the infamous General Johnny Burgoyne of Revolutionary War fame. Or infamy. Or yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and so it depends on who you ask. The British or the or the right. or British or the yeah. Americans. What kind yeah. of fame he had? Uh-huh. Um, but he was in the Revolutionary War and was a famous general. And so, Stan's Stan Burgoyne's aunt, who was Sadie, made many many efforts. And we're talking back in the fifties and forties and fifties and sixties when she would do genealogy, and she put a lot of effort into it. And she claims, and we've got the tree that. It shows how she thinks we're connected, but I haven't been able to recreate her work. And I've been doing it for 35 years and I can't figure it out. So that's not to say we're not. It's just not to say, it's just to say, I don't know yet. But but so, yeah, so he was quite the dramatist and um, he was in Fort Ticonderoga in New York. So there's lots of American connections there. And a lot of people who say, yeah, we're related to him, but we'll, we'll see. That's another story. Time will tell. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, thankfully, we had a few people in our family who recognized the importance of saving things, writing them down, you know, so the future generations would be able to know who came before them and, you know, what the history is and, you know, a little bit of the lore of the family, if you will. And one of the stories found in the family history folder that Stan had was the Dungarvan Hooper, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think I are. researched it. Yeah. <laughs> I looked and it says it's supposed to be pronounced Hooper, but it looks like it should be Whooper. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think it is Hooper, but depends on who you ask. You ask a French Canadian and it might be one way and you ask, yeah. you know, a, a British Canadian and it might be another. Right. So, yeah, I hadn't really heard this story before, but the Dungarvan Hooper is a story that he liked to, uh, Grandfather Stan liked to tell his children. And it's folklore that can be found on the University of Maine and multiple Canadian websites. Also Wikipedia. I found it there. Yep. And we'll include those in the show notes. But the Dungarvan River is located in New Brunswick and it's near Blackville, where there's a historical marker to this story. And I, I think there are a lot of versions of this story, but, you know, everybody here in Maine is, 
and certainly in New Brunswick, it would be familiar. It's it's a familiar type of story because it has to do with woods crews and them being remotely out in the woods and the the rest of the story. I'll let Kim tell the story, but it the story comes out of that tradition and it's pretty cool. I like it. I liked it too. And it's when I read it, I thought, and I read this 30 years ago. And I, it never left my brain, the Dungarvan Hooper, I'm thinking, and I've never heard anyone since mention it. So, I, mm. so I'm so i going to mention it. So there we go. Yeah, here uh, we go. So what had happened was Stan had written his own, his, his own version and, and recollections in this history, this family history. And it's fairly similar to the ones that we found online, but I'm going to go by what he said. And he, he said, the story is the Dungarvan Hooper on the, and this is what they wrote, the Wabski River, W-A-B-S-K-I. So, and I, I Googled that. I couldn't find it. So it may be a primitive name from maybe Dungarvan River because there is a Dungarvan River. But so what they do okay. is they go on to say that the Dungarvan Hooper on the Wabski River and the riverside growth is dark. The logging crews would go into the logging camp in the fall, pile the cut logs on the banks with a log to hold the pile back until running water in the spring. So they're there from the 1st of October until Christmas. And then they go back on New Year's and work until March. So that's a lot of wood, mm-hmm. but they are in there for a long time. When the ice would go out, they would start rolling in the landings. That's what was written. I'm not sure what that means, but they'd roll in the landings. The drives would last until about the 4th sometimes. I'm assuming meaning the 4th of July. The men would get paid $30 a month. So the story goes, a young boy, he was 11 or 12. He gets hired at the camp. He has a money belt with him with all of his money in it. And there was also a mean man that was hired. The boy, as they called him Cookie, goes to the river's edge to bring the, the bring lunch to the men for the cook back at camp. Then the boy is found dead. The boss said he must have took a fit, but most believed the mean man killed him because his money belt was missing. When the men returned to camp to work the following fall, something strange happened. When they were near the river where the boy was found dead, they heard horrible, inhuman, screaming noises. This spooked the men so badly that they wouldn't work at that woods camp anymore. They broke up the camp and would never work there again. And the priest came in the next year and did the rites of exorcism over the boy's grave. There were no more screams. Yeah, and that's the different versions that I read, all very similar to that. They all kind of go along that same vein. And I can can honestly kind of picture these men working in the woods out there and like the story kind of taking hold and becoming legend. I can see them bringing a priest in. I absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So there was a logger working on the Penobscot in West Enfield during the drive one year, and he bragged to the men and dared the devil to come after him. That day, the crew had to work late until way after dark. And as they were leaving, they heard an awful hollering. The man who had bragged that day was never seen again. And they say that the devil called his dare and came and got him. So lots of different versions that you can find on the web. And yet one is that an Irish cook by the name of Ryan was the camp worker murdered probably by the camp boss. And the same follows that after the burial in a shallow grave, screaming and hooping was heard, were heard that night by the workers and they closed the camp. And the screaming went on for many years until Father Murdoch blessed the grave and the screaming seemed to stop. Some say it continued. Yeah, we, we have a website that does, there's a website that is... Um you know, just for this particular instance, and it, it shows the historical marker in Blackville, New Brunswick about this story. Hmm. Road trip, anyone? I'm tomorrow. 
Let's go. <laughs> well, they probably have more snow than we do. So let's wait. Yeah, but, we might need to wait. Yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah. So I really, really enjoyed that folklore. And I, I would love to know more. I'd love to know all kinds of different folklore stories. And folklore doesn't have to be necessarily that kind of spooky bit, but it could also be stories about the family and, you know, how Grampy did something or whatever. Your great, great grandfather got here. Maybe he mm-hmm. was there with the Dungarvan Hooper. Maybe he used to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. But for us, where are we heading to next? So I have an idea. Picture it. Italy, 1912. A young single man, the eldest child of his family, heads off to the United States for a new life. He's five foot five. They report that he has chestnut eyes and hair with a natural complexion. He has $22 to his name. And in today's money, that's $645. And I think that's probably more than most people came to the United States with. That seems Yeah, like I think so. Maybe maybe they did a GoFundMe or something, but they that that's usually that's a little bit more money than I would anticipate most immigrants having. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's all right. He's got six hundred forty five dollars. He's going to start a new life. So he in September of nineteen twelve, Salvatore Nicolai disembarks from the ship Duca de Aosta in New York City. And I always I always like to bring up this fun fact because I was listening to Finding Your Roots on PBS. And they were talking with Nancy Pelosi and her Italian family. And sure enough, they were talking about her grandfather, Nicola Lombardi. That was his name. And he was listed on that very same ship, the Duca de Aosta. And he sailed just two months earlier. I mean, they I think there's just a flood of immigrants. But Salvatore could have known Nicola. They could have met. They could have all been in the same areas. People trying to get on the ship heading to the United States. And I believe that there were probably some sort of quotas and things like that. That mm. you know, so it was it was it was a very industrious pathway. People would go right from it was Naples, I believe. They go from Naples to the United States, one ship right after another. So anyway, Nancy Pelosi's grandfather and my husband's grandfather all went on the same ship to get to the United States. That's very cool. And as we said in Hazel's story, why would anyone leave Deer Isle? The same could be said for Salvatore. Why would you leave Italy? Because these days, boy, it seems like everybody wants to travel to Italy and, you know, enjoy all the right. food and the culture and the weather and the shopping and whatever the, all the different things Italy has to offer. It seems very, the dolce very nice. Vita. <laughs> the what? The Dolce Vita, <laughs> the sweet life. Yes, yes. But so, but in 1912, there was a war going on between Italy and Turkey over lands in Libya. That war is over by the year's end, but political unrest was just ongoing. And the name Benito Mussolini listed in some of the power shifts. And also, we learned that there were many earthquakes that caused economic devastation in Italy in the early 20th century. So and one of those being the Straits of Messina that caused 200,000 deaths by extreme damage and a tsunami. So I can't imagine that type of thing happening today, how, you know, so many people dying. It's awful. There were a lot. That that was the worst one. But there were Mm -hmm. there were several that were devastating. Yeah. And it would be such a difficult time that one, you know, maybe one might jump at an opportunity to start a new life. But it takes, I can't imagine the courage it took for them and for honestly, all of our ancestors, because we all have them that come from different places to just pack up and move so far away and start a new life. The, you know, everything unknown it's, but that gets me that's the ancestors leave their family and try to do better for themselves. And 
They're very brave. So next week, we're going to pick up with Salvatore and see how, how things are going for him here in the United States. Maybe we'll even tell you whose ancestor he is. And I may have let that slip. In the I, I think I you think let I that did. cat out of the bag. So that cat's out of the bag, but I'm still going to leave it there. And we'll talk about <laughs> it next week. But so, you know, we, we appreciate you listening. But uh, Laura, neither Laura nor I hit the $2 billion jackpot on the Powerball. So we have another get rich quick scheme. <laughs> such a nerd we want you to take the opportunity over thanksgiving weekend to tell a story or listen to a story maybe tell the dungarvan whooper story to some of your family just start a tradition of a story that that is important in your family or your friends or someone you know at work or something someone who you could just sit and have a conversation with you might be able to see friends and family they don't see very often ask them questions share some stories talk about pie charts talk about pie charts have you done your dna (laughs) Do you need help? Just give me a call. But no, um, <laughs> it's a good time Good time for people to try and talk about their memories of their family and stories right. they've heard. You know, And you know, y'all have a phone, just tape it and then write it down and share it for, for the generations that come. Um, so anyway, until next week. So we this will be coming out on Wednesday, one day before Thanksgiving. We wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. Yes, very happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And thank you so much for listening. And tune in next week when we talk more about Salvatore, the most handsome Italian ever to cross the, the Atlantic, I think. <laughs> You're right, not right, prejudiced. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>